Hello, and welcome to The Dirt, a podcast about archaeology, anthropology, and our shared human past. I'm Anna. And I'm Amber. And if you don't like today's episode, you can kick rocks. Uh, But please... (laughs) Go kick rocks. Uh, please don't kick these specific rocks um, because they're pretty significant. That's right, mm. y'all. We're talking megaliths from around the world, like all around the world. Um, since we're trying to hit every continent in this one, uh, we're going for breadth instead of depth, um, which I'm not great at. But <laughs> but so you are definitely the depth person on this show. You're the breadth. Uh-huh. You're so broad. You're yeah, you're yoked. Um, so I'm excited about this, which is not something I'm pretty, I'm really known for saying about rocks. Yeah. I'm excited about this. Um, I'm excited too. I'm excited. I, I didn't know this was happening. And then you texted me. I was like, I didn't know it was happening either. Want to do a script about rocks? Um, so everyone, like I got back from, um, I got back from Saudi and then was like, Oh no, the rest of my life. <laughs> was <laughs> everything else? I was like, I need an idea. Um, and um, and then you stubbed your toe on a rock. I indeed I did not. Uh, but mm-hmm. listeners, you may figure out uh, using context clues which story made me want to made me think about doing an entire episode about rocks. A little mm. be a little. I bet I know. Little little Easter egg for you in here. Mm. Before we get too far into this, just just know that this episode is going to be lightly edited. Um, and I think it's it's kind of funny how the timing worked out because I re reissued re what's the word re-released the mm-hmm. our Telebrock episode when Amber was in Arabia. was in a different country. <laughs> no, no, no. I just mean like it was our episode about Arabia oh. while you were there. Okay, and. <laughs> In the beginning of that episode, as we're doing our like opening chit chats, I was like, "Uh, oh, I'm packing up because I got to move. Oh, no. <laughs> and listeners, uh, uh, that was three years ago. How many leases? Yeah. <laughs> at the beginning of this lease, the yeah. dawn of the lease, and now you're at the dusk of the lease, aren't you? I think this was even the lease before, but it doesn't matter. I'm packing up to move again, and it is T minus... I don't know, 12 days until that happens. So, and you're going to come get your air mattress out of my apartment. <laughs> I am. I am moving to Philadelphia. So Amber and I will be living in the same, not even the same city, the same, pretty much the same block. Well, no, well, <laughs> well, like the same the zip same. code. Yeah. 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 So that's going to be really great. Um, and it's going to mean great things for the show. But until that point, <laughs> I'm a disaster. And so, yeah. Well, just yeah. like in terms of time management and okay. the the level of nap taking <laughs> that has been happening. Um, so, <clears throat> listeners, uh, bear with us and we'll uh, some good things are coming. So let's rock. Let's rock. <laughs> Before we depart on our big rock roundup, let's first talk oh. about all the different types of liths. Hi, welcome to Rock Talk. Uh, megalith is a compound word from Greek. That means big rock. So it's pretty apt. And megaliths come in units of one or more than one. Yep. <laughs> so far, 
I'm on board. <laughs> this is not the most complex concept we've introduced on the show, but, you know, bear with me. For each of the following categories, a primary criterion is that humans put it that way. A massive boulder just chilling in a field after being dragged by glacial activity millennia ago might be described by an ancient Greek as a megalithos, but that doesn't make it a megalith. Let's pause to check in with any ancient Greek listeners we have. Okay, great. What qualifies as a megalith? (laughs) Dikaiopolis, is that you? What qualifies as a megalith is relative from bigger than the other naturally occurring rocks to, oh my God, that is so big, like the largest known monolith excavated at the site of Baalbek in what is today Lebanon, where it's still hanging out in the quarry because maybe they were like, all right, we're, oh my God. (laughs) Oh my God. It's a whole complex. Oh my, okay. Okay. Oh my, oh my many gods with two other top five biggest monoliths. They were excavated out of the quarry by Roman stoneworkers, presumably for use in the nearby Jupiter Baal Temple. Com- mm, too many. I, I didn't. I didn't get a big enough run up <laughs> for use in the nearby Jupiter Baal Temple complex, dating to the first century CE. The largest of these stones is estimated at oh, that's so so peak so- one thousand six hundred and fifty tons, or roughly one and a half million kilograms. Good Lord. Uh, it says Amber shares her memory of Baalbek. Give yeah. me that memory. So uh, Baalbek is a, so that is the uh, classical Hellenistic city of Heliopolis. Uh, mm. So the um, like Jupiter Ball, that's like where. Sonsville. <laughs> yeah. Which like, fair yeah. enough. Um, yeah, but sure. so Hot. this was a, um, a, a lot of the, the monumental architecture there is is Roman, like it's classical. Um, but my memory of Baalbek is um, 1,000 years ago, um, <laughs> there was once upon a time, there was a network called MTV. And that oh, network called gosh. MTV had a, um, I don't, maybe I didn't turn on the TV while I was in the the peninsula uh last month but mm-hmm. mtv arabia mm-hmm. uh was oh, was a okay. channel and i remember um watching it at like 2 30 in the morning because i had jet lag and they had these really really cool interstitial ads uh for mtv arabia and there's one that is called dabka dude um, and I have a link to it in uh, the show notes uh, to nice. a, where it was ripped and put up on YouTube. It's a minute, but it is it is all done in like the era before Instagram filters. It looks like a vintage postcard, uh, like a sort mm. of like very like Levantine mm-hmm. holiday kind of postcard. And it's filmed at Ballbeck. And so they're like the there's like music playing and there are people doing dabka, which is like a traditional dance that's kind of done in a line. And then the guy at mm. the end like like twitches and like well, this is also the era of so you think you can dance, 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 dance. And he starts break dancing. And so there's like break nice. dancing dabka like at Volbeck. And it's it's very fun. It's a silly little thing. Um, and you can go watch that on YouTube. It's my memory of Volbeck. And that's why I remembered like well, there's nothing big there. And since then, in the 15 years since that was released, uh, I think it was 2014, they found those like big honking stones still in the quarry because I think they were just like, you know what? Never mind. It's, yeah. <laughs> Too big. But um, there are extremely large ones 
So those, I say they're three of the top five largest known Mm -hmm. monoliths um, Mm -hmm. are there in that quarry, but there are a couple top 10 contenders that are elsewhere in the complex. So it's not like Hmm. somebody like got a decimal place wrong or something like where it's just like you ordered what an an order of magnitude too big. It's Mm -hmm. it's just it was Mm -hmm. perhaps just a little too big. So maybe we've identified the limit. Mm. Huh. Well, (laughs) onward to monoliths. Um, A monolith, Q2001 Space Odyssey. Mm -hmm. Perfect. Thus, Sprach, Zarathustra. Very good. Yeah. Right? Yeah? Good. Yes. Okay. Pop culture touchstone engaged. Okay. That was uh, 50, 60 years ago? Yeah. Ish. I don't know. Just saying. 70s? That dumb. Yeah, but I would say it's a major. Cultural touch stone. Ah! Touch ah! Sto- A monolith is any single stone intentionally placed in the environment. A slab-shaped stone placed with the long side vertical, so skinny side upwards, is known as a standing stone, like, like a stick in the mud. Or, by the term used in Western European contexts, a menhir. They're also called orthostats, particularly when the upright slab-shaped stone is part of a larger arrangement or is supporting other stones. When the monolith is placed with the long side horizontal, as in cases where there's a burial underneath, this is called a capstone. If the person buried wasn't interred in the soil, if the person buried wasn't interred in the soil under a capstone, but within an underground box of large stones, that's known as a cyst with an I, not a Y. That's a medical thing. Yeah. A dolmen is a stone table constructed by placing a wide stone on top of other stones to elevate it relative to the area around it. Think the stone table from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, if you've read that or seen the movie. An intentional stack of stones is a cairn, and the boundary between dolmen and cairn blurs a bit, as we'll see in an example later. Oh, we no, won't. We won't? No, because okay. I got too long. <laughs> okay. I'll just cut that. Note to future me, or hi, listener, if you're still listening and I didn't snip this out. When a dolmen consists of two upright stones, or orthostats, eh? and a capstone across the top, that's called a trilithon. The most famous example of this is what you see when you close your eyes and imagine Stonehenge. If your eyes are still closed and thinking of Stonehenge, you might also be seeing a stone circle. Stone circles are sometimes known by the term cromlech, a Welsh word, they don't need to consist of massive stones, just intentionally placed in a ring. An alignment refers to an arrangement of stones that aren't in a ring shape, such as a series of rows or a spiral. The last category we'll mention here is that of megalithic walls, which are built from massive stones quarried, transported, and put into place with or without the use of mortar. Another term for this type of wall is cyclopean masonry, a reference to the walls of the Greek Bronze Age city of Mycenae, whose walls consisted of stones so large and well-fitting that only the mythological one-eyed giant Cyclopes could have managed to pull it off, according to Aristotle. But Well, according to Pliny the Elder saying it was Aristotle. Yeah. Um, also, <laughs> I mentioned that in my debate episode, Cyclops versus Kraken, on oh, wow. Smash Boom Best that I debated for my job. Anyway, it went great. There, that was the one where I did the Bruce Springsteen Cyclops. Yeah. So I like how you talk about your job there. And that noise that listeners probably just heard was me throwing my phone away because I got a, a message <laughs> <Not> from <now>. work. 
I tried uh, to gently toss it on, but instead it I just uh, angry birds my own phone. <laughs> and that brings us to one last point we should discuss before we embark on our world tour. Megaliths and the ritual landscapes they inhabit are impressive by design, and unfortunately, that often invites some arguably well-intentioned but still harmful ideas. So, like attribution to non-human creators, such as Pliny the Elder saying Aristotle was the one to say the Cyclopes had to have built the walls of Mycenae. So, like, way to throw a guy under a bus, Pliny. Um... And also the assumption that the wide distribution of megaliths means a single origin or shared purpose among them. So I'm going to quote here from a, a blurb from the Newgrange site, which is a, um, a megalithic site in, in the UK. Hmm. Quote, it is important to bear in mind that the structures that we see today represent only the final stage of construction of such a monument, which could well have been erected on ground occupied by its predecessors over a period of as much as a couple thousand years. In the case of Stonehenge, it has been possible to map out all the changes in design which occurred over a couple of millennia. In the Boyne Valley in Ireland, where stones are often elaborately engraved, restoration work has revealed that stones at present on view are also engraved on the reverse side, indicating reuse from an earlier construction. And we'll revisit a different angle to that idea of having a single origin or shared purpose um, here in a few minutes. So just put a pin in that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, it, and it falls under the category of just like, just because there are common things across cultures doesn't mean that those cultures even, you know, they didn't have a committee necessarily. And we're like, how about this? Things happen convergently or transmission happens and it's all complicated. So one more thing that kind of, it's just sort of, oh gosh, it's widespread and it shouldn't be, is the comparison to Stonehenge, which we say as we've which just compared some things to Stonehenge. Which could have a single origin or shared purpose. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Um, and, and that's, you know, it's the, the blank of the place. So like, oh, it's the Stonehenge of Asia or whatever. Or Africa. So, well, I was going to get there. I so was like you up, Anna. Okay, so... A comparison to Stonehenge, like, sure, it's a touchstone for the non-specialist reader because most people who have access to the Internet have heard of Stonehenge. But it's doing those readers a disservice by providing a mental connection between two places or objects with completely different contexts. And it also erases the context of the lesser known thing by kind of superimposing Stonehenge on top of it. So, for example, Stonehenge was built by early Europeans. Nabta Playa is a site in Africa, in the Nubian Desert, hundreds of kilometers and also hundreds of miles south of Cairo. It dates to around 7500 BCE, while the earliest phases of Stonehenge date to around 3000 BCE. So it's way older, seems to have served a similar purpose if we agree with the interpretation that Stonehenge might might be a, a seasonal calendar of some sort. Nafta Playa was definitely uh, a time tracker of some sort. So who needs Stonehenge? Nafta Playa is the Nafta Playa of Africa. And it definitely shouldn't be getting top billing, Stonehenge, or in any way drawing connections between this type of site and a single culture. That way lies pseudoscience traps. Ooh. And even more things fly yeah. beyond that. Uh, so remember mm -hmm. I told you you had that pen, that pen and that stone, that's a piton. Uh, take it out. 
Take it out. It's just a delicious, crunchy snack. What? It sounds like it should be. Piton sounds like it yeah, should be a little. that's not what that means. No, no. A piton is a climbing spike. I'm yes, sorry. Yes, thank you. Yes. So a uh, so now that we've plucked that piton and clarified what it means, um, I want to give you another example that I found very uh, powerful and very uh, informative um, on this idea of the uh, – the, the dangers of um, implicitly or explicitly uh, sort of implying or, or just straight up saying that um, these uh, structures or arrangements with similar forms have similar functions and beyond that, similar origins. Uh, and that example uh, comes from Australia. Uh, so it does a this this example um, sucks, frankly, but it does a great job of of um, illustrating the dehumanizing effects of of sort of pseudo historical or pseudo scientific thinking in archaeology, but with none of the silly alien business to distract us. Uh, so I learned about this from an article published in the Journal of Material Culture by Lynette Russell and Ian J. McNiven, uh, titled Monumental Colonialism, Megaliths, and the Appropriation of Australia's Aboriginal Past. So the article was published in, 1990, in 1998, which was a quarter of a century ago. So talk about deep time. Um, so there is some outdated language used throughout uh, that just give folks a heads up about that. Also some just like references to primary sources that are racist. Um, so, and like violently so. Um, so I still found it very illuminating um, and sadly still very relevant to archaeology's lagging arrival to the we've historically contributed to colonialism party. Um, <sighs> even fewer people have showed up to the we still do after party. But that being it's said. Not, it's um, not a fun party. <laughs> Uh, the article tackles the role of representation and historical narrative in dispossession, explaining that, quote, colonizers often justify their actions by dissociating the natives from their cultural heritage. Arguments that are usually couched in terms which suggest that the indigenes are relatively recent arrivals and therefore are themselves coloners. Alternative colonizers. Colonizers. I don't know what I said. Did I say cauliflowers? It no, you, you said coloners. Okay. Um, okay. <coughs> Arguments are usually couched in terms which suggest that the indigenes are relatively recent arrivals and therefore are themselves colonizers. Alternative arguments purport that indigenous cultural heritage is the result of a previous race of people. These prior races are always culturally closer to the colonizers than to the indigenous inhabitants, end quote. Like, that's not... That's my, that might not be new to, to many of our listeners, like that idea of uh, that's, that's a pretty like standard talking point in, in these sorts of harmful ideologies. Now, examples mm -hmm. of this uh, given in the article are of the narrative during westward expansion in the United States that the mound builders were a separate race of nobler, possibly biblical Viking, Celtic, or otherwise less othered. Um, folks um, who had been replaced by the less advanced indigenous groups that were being removed actively during the process of westward expansion. Likewise, Great Zimbabwe was co-opted as part of British colonial heritage, even down to taking the, the soapstone bird and making it part of the, the coat of arms of Rhodesia. Um, 
Cecil, Cecil Rhodes was a big fan of it. Um, and so there, and during the existence of Rhodesia, um, the theories, theories were put forward and, and dissenting voices kind of tamped out, um, that a former civilized light skinned race must have built great Zimbabwe. They called it great Rhodesia. Yeah. Great Rhodesia at that point. Um, they must have built it, and its well, its very existence was a testament to the great wealth that new masters could extract from it. Um, so even Gertrude Caton Thompson, who also puttered around South Arabia a bit, I spent some time with her in the library last week. Um, she's dead, her but um, books, so she yeah, not she, like her her ghost. <laughs> no, just like her her takes her takes on South Arabia. Yeah. Um, yeah. So she excavated there for like a month-ish and concluded it was indeed constructed by indigenous Bantu people, but yeah. they'd done it under someone else's instruction as it was the, quote, product of an infantile mind, end quote. Wow. So in the hmm. Australian context, bringing us back to this article, Russell and McNiven point out ways in which early European, so English, uh, descriptions of Aboriginal stone arrangements were descriptively accurate, but only understood within a larger historical context that involved British history and disconnected them, so these arrangements, from the contemporary communities. So this was compounded by the fact that when Aboriginal Australians were asked about those features, the answers were either, someone made it that way a long time ago, uh, whatever, um, or to deny knowledge altogether being like, I don't know what that's for. Um, some, some guy did that way back when, who knows, um, which further reinforced their relative newness to the land and weakened any claim to it. This idea of terra nullius kind of like it wasn't, it's not theirs. Yeah. If so, you don't remember, then it's not, then, it doesn't, it's like, not. It's not like it that much people kind of thing. So in the case of stone circles near Mount elephant in Victoria, (laughs) uh, the, the contemporary state, um, a circle of intentionally placed, but not huge. That's important (laughs) for what comes next. Uh, stones Mm -hmm. was described that likely was a burial or had some other undisclosed purpose, undisclosed to, um, colonizers. Um, right. So an illustration published in 1877 showed a downright stone hingey circle in the foreground with uh, like massive, like massive kind of blue stone kind of miniers kind of things. Um, oh. And so that was in the, the foreground of the image. Uh, perhaps it was a lithograph. Um, I, I think it might have been. I don't know. <laughs> but there's also in the that would, corner. That would match our theme. So let's let's say it was that. Yeah, yeah. In the corner, there's this kind of shadowy primitive camp. Like it's mm. it's just sort of like a little huddy lean-to thing. And two figures oblivious to the origins or significance of the circle. And they're just hanging out in the lower just corner. Hanging out. So inaccurate depictions, uh, along with providing captions that underscore the mystery of the site, like the mystery to the people who were there um, and the people who are encountering it, um, Mm -hmm. as well as the current indigenous population's ignorance of and lack of respect for the stones had the effect of, in the words of the authors of this article, quote, the creation of the Mount Elephant megalith sites helped European colonists to legitimize their rights to inherit the Australian continent. European colonization literally became a process of the repossession of a lost domain of their heritage, end quote. Could, could I ask a clarifying question? Yeah. The, the lack of respect for the stones, is that 
from the perspective of the colonizers? It was, it was, yeah, it was sort of, no, there were like antiquarians who were going out there and being like, well, they don't care about this. They don't respect it. They don't venerate it. They like, it's, you know, lost on them. And uh, so they, they they use some, um, like they interviewed, which I don't, that, that, I mean, I don't (laughs) know. Audible air quotes. Well, well, cause like, I don't like, do you have the English vocabulary (laughs) to describe something? Um, that is like very like nuanced. Also, do you want to share anything that's sacred to like your community with like these like sunburned white guys? Like not necessarily. So Probably this not, was no. all, so this is sort okay. of the response. I just was, wanted to they make don't sure I had the, it. Okay. Yeah. So I the authors sure of the article the perspective. aren't okay. saying that indigenous folks yeah. didn't respect it. Uh, They're saying that the the 19th century folks involved in this process of dispossession were arguing this in the sort of like kind of intel like upmarket press and and sort of in in writings. You don't know what respect or veneration means in that context, but you do if it's actually yours. If it's your no, no, you the you the colonizers. If I'm yeah, so. If this is actually my heritage that is is just removed from me geographically, then mm-hmm. I do get to say what is and isn't respect because mm-hmm. it's my call kind of thing. Um, yeah. So the colonial project got a further assist from that roundabout way in which antiquarians, historians, and anthropologists subtly – Um, or sometimes explicitly packaged Aboriginal Australian culture as a living stone age. Um, There's a book with that title. I think it was published in the 60s. (laughs) Um, And and their culture is really just our culture 5,000 years ago. So they're our ancestors only just alive today. So really, the land is rightfully ours because we are their heirs. No, but they're right there. (laughs) But it's, so it's like this sort of, it's like it's a weird. time warp kind of thing. But if weird, you yeah. if you sort of if you kind of if it's sort of like it's like one of those like a magic eye where you don't look straight at it. If you don't mm-hmm. look straight at it, you can kind of see what what is being depicted. But if you look straight at mm-hmm. it, it doesn't make any sense. That's kind mm-hmm. of what this is of that like it's ours, but we went so far away we went back in time kind of thing because we're on the other side of the planet. Um so I wanted to focus on this idea up top and kind of um put put it out there um before we really start popcorning around the globe um because it's important to remember that each example was built within a specific context for a specific purpose and can't be fitted along some great continuum of progress or distribution of forms um i think that um i trust that folks listening um are uh not shocked by this news, if not already on board, but I, but I wanted to, I wanted to make it um, mean a little bit more than just like something like a refrain that you hear to see like here's a like kind of extreme example of how um, there can be it can be wrapped up in something that has very real impacts um, on on living populations on living populations and and also like the course of history. 
Yes. And and also so that. some examples have historical context or cultural continuity to living people who can articulate the purpose or choose to. Um, but others from deep antiquity are always going to be a bit lost on us. And in still others, like there is that continuity, but frankly, it's none of our business. Um, and it's not our call. Like it's not our, yeah. the person outside of that community's call. Um, because like, there's a lot of examples, like sort of like cautionary tales of sharing things that are, are important to you with people who just come around to ask questions. Um, so in any of these cases, our brains may want to do shortcuts that connect one to another, like the whole like Stonehenge of kind of thing. Um, and that's a thing that brains do, but that's not productive. So we kind of have to fight that a little bit, push back against it. So I'm not saying we should get discouraged in a very postmodern, like we can't know anything. So what's the point in attempting to study it at all? Like, don't turn off the show and like, Yeet your phone. Please don't do that. Uh, like I did. <laughs> Unless your boss just texted you. <laughs> um, we're just not, we, we just aren't doing this round out or this roundup to zoom out and make some sweeping comment about humanity. Um, but all that no. being said, zooming out <laughs> is exactly <laughs> how researchers recently made huge leaps in understanding the purpose of our our first little kernel of popcorn that's popping up uh so that's a great segue bud thanks Beginning in the 1920s CE uh when someone happened to look down while flying overhead um, in a plane. In a plane. I, I assume doing an espionage, but who knows? Timing's right for that. Yep. Yep. Um, there have been photographs of massively massive structures that looked like, uh, well, these are desert kites. So what do you think they looked like? Kites. W was it kites? In the desert. Hey, um, hey so, which desert are we talking about? Are we still in Australia? Well, get ready. Okay. A bunch of them. Um, okay. So, so we are in we are in um, Western Asia right now. This is where the first ones were spotted, sort of in like the uh, the previously Ottoman parts of the desert. <laughs> oh, when we were when we were doing all that. Um, well, that would explain the espionage. <laughs> yes. <laughs> what are they doing um, so, down there? <laughs> so this is in uh, the sort of um, northern Arabian desert is is when they were first noticed. Um, so a desert kite. Um, is a descriptive term, not a functional term. Um, so these are, uh, so if you were to look at one orthographically, if you look at it from, from above, they have three features that are shared among, among them. Um, all of it's lines of stones. So lines of stones and these form the kite strings. So like the little fluttery tails that fly behind it. Um, the lines converge into shapes sometimes kind of diamond shaped, sometimes a little looser. Um, any, and any kite I've ever built has been not quite diamond shaped. Were you a kite guy? No, I've just, when I was a little kid, I, I built kites, you know, like out of like sticks and tissue paper. Oh, okay. My brother was not, a kite guy. No, I was never a kite like guy. Like a sport kite kind of thing? No, I think, I think the idea is fun, but I just, I like building things. We just had, we had a lot of things are just like, solitary quiet activity <laughs> in our household kite well, guy. You, also live, yeah. you, you also have a lot of access to hilltops and i feel sure like that do. would be good for kite flying it's true yeah. yeah um so not these kites 
Uh, so the kites, so, okay, so we got the strings and we got the body. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And then we got the thing that all kites have, little pits <laughs> dug along the edges. <laughs> you know, like kites have. So, but I mean, that's pits. harder to see from a plane from which you are doing an espionage. Um, sure, and so, you've probably got other things on your mind. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> conquest um so for the better part of a century so this is from the 20s to the now 20s um the desert kites were known from satellite and aerial photography um but just kind of locally so if you were working in this corner of this desert you knew about these and you're like hey what's up with that it's like a weird this fence. is a weird thing that our neighborhood and has. then if you were working in like central asia you'd be like oh it's a weird fence or if you're working in the sahara you're like eh, weird fence and so people hadn't really talked to each other because they don't go to the same conferences basically <laughs> or they're housed in different departments um but uh, as it turns out interesting if you scroll down anna and look at this map i'm, I'm um, looking they're happening all over the place not all all over the place be if the place is Western Asia, Central Asia, and North Africa. Um, So in recent years, there's been sort of a kind of comprehensive effort towards this and a project called Global Kites. Um, And they have inventoried over 6,000 desert kites in Western Asia and Central Asia, as well as in the Sahara. So there are regional variations, but... um, as put forward in a 2022 article published in the Journal of World Prehistory, um, the idea is that they were used as mega traps for hunting. So the the low walls, which like aren't really they they like it's just a wall that keeps going. You're like, what? Whereas, but Where? is it high enough to like trip a deer? No, because it's not. So these are they work like drift fences. At where they aren't designed to really like pen things in, but just to kind of contour the to, flow to influence of the direction moving. that they go. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So you're yeah. not, they're not tripping and falling into the pits necessarily. <laughs> it's not like a bison drive or something where you, yeah. where okay. you, the, the idea is that they're stopping or, or like, <laughs> well, and yeah, gravity is, yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's, it's not, it's not so much like it's not that, that, but it's it's directing the herd. It's directing the herd and giving is, is and giving you more sort of agency in its movement when you are not like you're not out there herding them. Like you're not doing that. Um, no little dogies <laughs> are getting along. I was just saying, uh, you don't you don't have a sheepdog to go like yeah. Ah. So so this it sort of kind of hems it in and it makes it easier mm-hmm. to harvest prey animals. Mm-hmm. Um, and I specifically chose harvest because I don't really know if there's if there's much indication to say like if those pits were for if it were like a drive but for smaller sure, animals that don't have like to go as far. Was in- or maybe there was a person who was just like eh, like that kind of thing. I don't know. <laughs> So as if your, this your could spearing noise is truly terrifying. <laughs> as if this could not get any cooler as a concept. Mm-hmm. Um, there is also evidence of intentional planning of these kites rather than just kind of winging oh it. Oh my god, they did have a committee. <laughs> like maybe but like, like a super local maybe, one, not yeah, like a like more like one. a more like syndicalist than like <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um yeah. so just last month, um in May of 2023, <laughs> there was a study published in PLOS One featuring the following 
Anna, look at these zoom. photos and tell me. I know, me, I gotta zoom. Tell me what you see. Okay, so Are you what impressed? I see. Can you see I'm, it? Yeah, no, it's like, really Like, it blew cool. my mind. Like, it just. Yes, all of my sphincters are clenching. <gasps> I just, let me. <laughs> <laughs> On the left, I see a big old rock with a uh, carving on it with. I thought you were going to say like a scale. <laughs> well, it does have a scale bar on it. Yes, you but jerk. it's a shape inscribed <laughs> yeah. on the rock. And then next to it is an aerial view of one of these desert kites that has the same shape. <laughs> it's, a, it's a drawing board. It's a, it's a drawing so, board where they were like, we'll do this and then we'll have it go around this corner. And or then this. it's like a it's like when you go to the scenic lookout and there's like a map of like the water. Oh, here's what you're going to see. Yeah. Um, oh. So on the left is a boulder. God's monolith uh, yeah, as it from mm-hmm. uh, Jebel Aziliat in, in Saudi Arabia, in northern Saudi Arabia, um, with a series of lines engraved into it. And on the right is an aerial photograph of Jebel Aziliat, Saudi Arabia, that looks just like it. Like, yes, impressively like, like it. You might it have really to, does. like, super zoom or, like, change the contrast on your, like, yeah. It's impressive. Um, so this is dated to sometime between seven and nine thousand years ago, and it is one of which is the. It, was there a way to date the the, the petroglyph, the carving? Okay, the petroglyph. I think the petroglyph. Dated. Okay, I don't I, know I, how you know, petroglyphs. I don't know are if dated. there's a way. <laughs> I can let you know in like no 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 nine months when we do that training. <laughs> no no, I just I was just wondering if there was a way to tell which came first. But anyway. No, oh, like, is it like a here's a map of what we did versus like here's what here's we're what gonna we're do. doing? It's not yeah, like the yeah. the builders like laid it out, and you have like <laughs> the guy who's being like, so right here, like 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 Could I don't be. I don't know, I Anna. Don't know. Yeah, but I don't either. The I. thing that yeah. really matters is that it exists uh, because yeah. no, that's incredible. This is not this is not like with the Nazca lines where, mm-hmm. I mean, it's like different altogether, but whereas like the, it's like, Oh, you can't see it except from space. It's like, well, no, you can get up on a hill. Like this is something that is bigger than like, you, you really can't see it unless you're up in sky. Yeah. do Yeah. So, um, this is not the only example included mm. in that story in that, cool. uh, um, in that study, as oh. covered by the New York Times, there's one in Jordan, too, which is a monolith that's um, engraved and, like, a little busted. Um, and it's sort of, like, reconstructed, uh, like, 3D reconstruction. And there's one that matches it. So these are sort of <laughs> up in the same area. So I'm not saying that everyone had, like, sort of a map, like a like a visitor's guide to it. These two, the one in Jordan and the one in Saudi Arabia... Um, are close enough together that it's not unlikely that, and, and mm-hmm. also like functionally they can do similar things. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this, um, like blew my whole mind. So let's move from huge groups of stones to groups of huge stones and pay a little attention to the megaliths that get the best press. Would these be rock stars? Ugh. Mm. 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 That wasn't even scripted. This is why that we came right off the dome. This is five years. Mm. <laughs> also, I do. I want listeners to check out if if you're interested in um, just rock stuff in general, <laughs> or not. Because like, like I wasn't. Look, like 
you know, my love language is running up to you with a pocket full of rocks and being like, look at this one. Oh, my love language is sending you a photo of something terrible I saw. Well, we're fun. We're fun at parties. (laughs) Um, No, when you had the outline of the script and you said desert kites, I was like, oh, is that that thing? And it wasn't that thing. But I want to tell listeners about that thing because it's cool. Um, Listeners, you can Google sailing stones. And these are uh, rocks. They're not monoliths. They're just rocks. And definitely. Huh? God's monoliths. (laughs) No, they're not even. They're just, they're rocks that travel under the, like, they just, they have, um, (laughs) you know. You know when Wiley Coyote runs really fast and he leaves like a dirt furrow behind him? Um, these rocks do that. And it's because of how they interact with the desert wind and the surface of the desert. So you just get these stationary rocks. Like if you're if you don't catch them when they're moving, then you just get these rocks sitting there with these little furrows behind them where they've been boogieing around the desert and they're in Death Valley and they're very cool. And that's what I thought that was. But no. All no. right. No, what I chose was something. Relevant. Oh, that's way cooler. I know. <laughs> I know. But I, you know, I'm just a walking pile of facts. And well, that's one that I wanted to share. Thank you. So thank you. So let's uh, let's hop over to Neolithic Europe, uh, where there are tons God. of stones, depending on where you are and how you spell tons. Oh, and how At you least... measure it. It's hard. I don't know. Yeah. They're different. Yeah. There's so many stones. Like, um, at least 35,000 in Western Europe, which I'm identifying as Sweden down to the Mediterranean, so like big. that whole stripe. Yeah. So like big area. Big number. Lots of these things. So these are... <laughs> I'm out. Simmer down. Simmer down, <laughs> so... Billy. Um, We're halfway so through again, the script, but I'm out. <laughs> again, uh, let's do a quick little uh, vocabulary level set. The types of meg- megalithic features that you find... In this area, again, not everyone did all of these. We can't assume any of this is connected beyond like, ooh, we also like to stack huge rocks. Like, you know, it's not a, it's not a, uh, a, it's not proof of cultural connectivity, you know. Uh, What? What are you looking at? Connectivity? Like, is that connection? Connectedness? Cultural continuity? Is that what I meant to say? I think you meant connection and not like connectivity because they're capable of connecting with one another <laughs> if given like opportunity. It's not same. Not same, same. All right. Well, uh, let me try to connect with my last brain cell and continue. Uh, we got your portal tombs, a.k.a. a rock table or, or the world's dolmen. heaviest tent or dolmen. And that is a chamber consisting of upright stones, or the stats, with one or more large flat capstones forming a roof. Many portal tombs have been found to contain human remains, but it is debated if their primary function was as burial sites. So, like, someone may have come along later and gone, hmm, handy. The megalithic structures in... No, like, they had a a respected person to bury, and and they're like, ah, yes, put them in there. Sure. Sure. The megalithic structures in the northwest of France are believed to be the oldest in Europe. So it's in Brittany, which is quite culturally distinct from the rest of France if you're sort of earlier in time. Uh, But that's based on radiocarbon dating. Um, A passage grave normally consists of a square, circular, or cruciform chamber with a... It's a cyst. 
Okay. I'm just I'm just connecting. I'm doing I'm doing a word yeah, bank. For I folks. just the words you're doing it you're doing it silently with hand gestures. They can't see that. <laughs> anyway, it's basically a shaped chamber with a slabbed or corbelled roof, which Thank you for miming corbel roof. <laughs> Accessed by a long straight passageway with the whole structure covered by a circular mound of earth. So, yeah. Uh, you got your standing stones, just the onesies, the meniers, and you got your stone circles. Currently, based on a 2019 carbon dating slash Bayesian statistical analysis study. So, uh, Bayesian statistics are when you feed a whole bunch of data into a program and it tells you... Uh, it statistically determines the most likely reason for the ways that the data groups in this example. So it's just sort of like, where are these groups of um, megaliths found? You know, what, how, what's the time distribution of, you know, when they're dated to. So then what's the most likely scenario by which these stones were placed, right? So it's, is it, this was a completely disconnected process and it seems to not really link up to any movement between locations or is it some sort of diffusion process where like one culture is spreading ideas or that, or the people are okay. moving. So it's not like a pass fail. There's a connection. It's no, it's, it's, it's just sort of like, like a scatter plot through time yes. or through conditions. Yes. It's like a multi-axis yes, exactly. scatter plot. Yeah. Where yes, you're grouping them, but you're of... also grouping them in terms of of time or structure mm -hmm. or composition. Yeah. So there are multiple variables that you can you can put into the model to say, like, okay, I want to look at, like you said, time, space, um, distribution, whatever. And then yeah, the you get an output that is you can visualize it like you can make a scatter plot out of it and sort of um notice where there are clusters mm -hmm. and what the clusters tell you are you know sort of like this is the most likely scenario for whatever and it's so applicable the to the lots cluster, of things the more likely the case i think so we have now stepped outside the boundary okay. of my very very limited well i earned my participation credit for this no you, that was sure. that was so great okay, i learned you something just, thank you oh i don't know if you did but I, well i mean i've <laughs> I'm a historian so, now, so I don't uh, need to know. <laughs> okay, well, I mean, at least based on this 2019 study, it seems that the practice of building megalithic graves started in what is today Northwest France, Brittany, and then the idea, but probably not the stones, traveled outwards through trading routes in the Mediterranean. And the article cites, like, this, sorry, the, the write-up of the article, I should say, uh, calls this indications of surprisingly robust maritime trading routes Surprising to at whom? that time yeah like i know exactly yes yep okay so well every day you wake up on a boat and you're like ah! again <laughs> i would <laughs> uh okay fine i'll talk about stonehenge for a minute i mean you don't but have only to no, I want to. Uh, only to share a list of theorized uses for the structure and reasons it was built. I want you to take all of these with a handful of salt. The point I'm going for here is to demonstrate that if the list of interpretations is this long and varied, then Occam's razor, or Newton's flaming laser sword, 
Both suggest that maybe it had many uses over time, and also that we don't have the whole story. Do you need me to explain Newton's What's flaming Newton's laser sword? What nerd? Yeah, it was it was invented by or uh, it was coined by an Australian mathematician, and it's basically. I feel like through Bayesian analysis, I could have guessed that it was <laughs> an Australian <laughs> mathematician named Mike who came up with that. But okay, so it's Occam, it's same same Occam's razor, where it's just the thing most likely no. to have happened is the simplest. No, it is. You shouldn't bother even disputing propositions unless you can demonstrate those propositions with precise logic uh, and you can have observable consequences. So like if it's not something that you can see or measure or I, otherwise quantify, well, what's the point? I take an issue with Don't that because you get because Mike here gets to decide what counts as like valid measurement. No, like I a know. valid tool for measurement. Mike. I know. You're on notice. Uh, so that's Newton's flaming laser sword. That's a very reductive version of it. But then again, it's a sounds pretty reductive. reductive. <laughs> it's a reductive notion. Um, okay, so this is accumulated from articles from the New York Times and Live Science. So here's a smorgasbord of theories that have been made about Stonehenge over the last years, uh, the last few years, in no particular order. Are you making that face at the first one? Yeah. In 2003. Canadian gynecologist Anthony M. Perks came up with an anatomical explanation for Stonehenge. It's for birthing, as in like the women year would go there to oh give birth. That was like a like symbolic a, thing. I mean, maybe. Are but you, what, it is, you're saying it's a maternity ward. I'm saying that it's a ceremonial place where uh, maybe maybe there were like doulas present, and like you could go and uh-huh. have an assisted birth. That's the way so that it's really uh, not like a symbol of like. We're pushing out the new year. Here comes the sun. It's crowning. No, Perk suggested that it was a literal place of birthing. But I mean, he didn't, I didn't, I didn't go read his article. (laughs) So maybe he went on to say symbolism, question mark. But the point is that Anthony says that Dr. Perks says that Stonehenge is shaped in a way that symbolizes the human vulva and birth canal. I sure. Option the second, a seasonal astronomical calendar. Yep, lots of versions of that. Um, a place of healing for travelers on intersecting routes through Western Europe, which it is in in a place where lots of travelers' routes would have intersected. I hear they had surprisingly robust maritime routes. Yeah, so especially, you know, these big beefy sailors walking around. Mm. <laughs> Hello, sailor. Uh magic rocks in a circle like literally magic or symbolically magic symbolically magic like you know it's like a place where ritual happens okay yeah it's either magic or it's a vulva those are the the, it's a binary one in the same right hey herstory uh yeah her historian uh mike parker pearson a professor at Mm -hmm. university college london who has made major Stonehenge-related <laughs> discoveries, says... He found it. That, that locally, at the time that it was made, during the thousand-year period-ish, uh, there were few, if any, villages, and society was, quote, trying to create a sense of unity and collaboration among its members, end quote. Oh, my God. It was a student union? I was there, like, a ping-pong like table a, in it? A neighborhood project. Like a park? You know? 
Yeah, like a park or like a parade float. Um, and then finally, something that we covered on one gajillion years ago on episode 75. This is your brain on drums. Uh, a soundscape with specifically placed stones to sort of uh, control the acoustics for religious trances and gatherings. So that's not all of them, but hopefully it gives you a sense of how varied the explanations are. and <laughs> Both the explanations and the things they're explaining. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> yes. But also just like the fact that so many wildly different explanations for the arrangement of big rocks exist, that, that should tell us something, you know, about what we know and what we don't know. I, my, um, thank you for sharing this. This sure. is, um, <laughs> I did my best. I just, most of what I know about sort of the ritual landscape, I, what I know I've learned from like theory courses in which would discuss like phenomenology and like folks who work there. And it all just makes me want to lay down. Like just, just On like, Dolman? just no, in an assist, put a little cast down <laughs> over me. <laughs> I just, I just want to expire. Um, but next up, fortunately, uh, we, we're moving on. Yes, we sure are. We're going. Oh no, somewhere else. What? Oh, that's all the word bleakest. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, okay. Mm. So now we're getting into like a another like refrain of this musical thing. Um, again, I I followed my brother around when he did kite stuff. You knew music, so you know different. Is the word you're looking for song? Oh, I was thinking like an arrangement or like a, but you have mm. like movements and there's like a sonata mm -hmm. or something, an etude. I don't know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. I don't Symphony. Know. So we're going to the islands that constitute the current nation of Indonesia to shed some light on a Google search entry that yielded some of the bleakest results I've seen in a while. Until and I, I know what you Google and that's saying something. I know, right? I saw Man, I have like a whole like album on my phone of screenshots of things that Google suggests to me. <laughs> yeah, I know. I've seen most of them. Uh, no, you haven't. Oh, no. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> well. Um, so uh, so the, that, that entry is Indonesian megaliths. So I'm going to okay. keep hitting on this because like, it really bummed me out. Um, so plenty of internet people will tell you that these are mysterious and the tribes people forgot how to make these megaliths centuries ago, if they ever knew at all, and that they're just like unknowably old. So enter well. the 2018 book Indonesian Megaliths, A Forgotten Cultural Heritage by Tara Steimer Herbe, uh, which examines the diverse forms and functions of megaliths across the larger islands of Sumatra, Java, and Sulawesi, as well as the smaller islands of Nias, Sumba, and Flores. Uh, there are like thousands of islands that are part of mm -hmm. Indonesia. So these are just like the ones that got megaliths on them. So um, I do recommend checking the book out. The ebook is free. There's lots of Yay. photos. Pictures. Um, I'll have a link. Like, like, oh, and like for looking at rocks that are big, it's great to look at a photo. Like it's, but uh, what, that was a genuine ex exclamation of yeah. glee. So, um, so what makes this so interesting to me is the scale of diversity. 
Mm, um, so okay. we've spent the last 57 and a half minutes talking about <laughs> a range of megalithic cultural objects from different corners of the globe. And it's easy to imagine there'd be a wide variety of purposes because like, it's, you know, all over and all kinds of people that probably never met each other and couldn't have, even if they tried. Um, but these islands constitute a like really, frankly, small percentage of global geography, just in terms of like land with people on it. It's not that mm -hmm. much. Um, but they have so many different reasons and expressions uh, for their megalithic mm -hmm. objects. Um, so I appreciate this reminder that the world can both be very big and very small at the same time. Mm. Um, so Steimer Herve invokes that scent. I think I'm saying, I'm sorry if I'm not saying it right. I think she's Swiss. <laughs> so that's. Oh, it's a little bit of everything, huh? I, like, I think, well, yeah. she's at the um, Université Genève, so Geneva. I think she, sure, I, I think she's Swiss. Um, so uh, she invokes that sense of sort of bigness and smallness at the same time in the opening to her book, uh, when she paints a picture of the world within world, worlds within world, uh, by saying, <laughs> "quote." Spirits of nature and numerous stone statues inhabit the rice fields, forests, and mountains of Indonesia. Legend says that the goddess Pahetlita, a mythical figure of Asia, turns men who transgress moral codes into stone. <laughs> the Indonesians are not surprised to see in their fields statues that intertwine anthropomorphic creatures, buffaloes, and mystical animals. Petrification, petrification is not always considered a punishment on the Indonesian archipelago by the numerous indigenous peoples distinguished from each other by language, architecture, clothing, and rituals. The people of Nias do not understand those of Flores or those of Somba. Likewise, a Toraja from Sulawesi is as much a stranger to a man from the Bada Valley as an Inuit to a Papuan, though there is only a four, there is only four days walk between the valleys that separate the former. End quote. So, I, so these are very insular communities? Yeah. Or maybe okay. they interact, but they, they're things that kind of are held sacred. That, sure. that Stuff you just so don't these talk are about these are um, sure. cultures that, as we'll see momentarily, like they're sort of uh, spiritual or like religious. They're kind of non-corporal lives um, are quite syncretic. So they'll pull from one another because it's sort of this this uh, leaning towards like common ground and kind of pulling in elements of other things. Uh, but maybe some things weren't. But so syncretic is is when you uh, pull little elements from external sources so, into your own. So is it specific to religion. Syncretism or like spirituality? is syncretism is in its like proper sense. You can use it sure. in like a literary capacity to describe other mm -hmm. things that follow this process, but syncretism is a term that's used in religion to describe mm -hmm. um, a a, a sort of an external religion, uh, a, a, like a larger religious kind of force. It doesn't have to be dominant necessarily, but just sort of around. More people, more people doing it. More people doing it. It's new or something, and pulling in elements and folding them into existing traditions to create okay. something that's kind of mutually distinct from both. Um, okay. And it kind of comes from comes from one and has like a like a heart, like a like not more than a kernel. Like the it's still. The basics are still fundamentally this, but it pulls in perhaps iconography okay. or traditions or, um, or or concepts. And so th things. Okay. Uh, example is like um, uh, Bridget becoming like Saint Bridget. 
the author resituates these worlds within a larger, eventually global cultural ecosystem, describing the two periods of megalithic construction. So they're, they're ending with, uh, sorry, ooh, I'm going to start that over. Anna, okay. cut that out. Okay. The author resituates these these worlds, these many worlds, within a larger, single, eventually global cultural ecosystem, describing the two periods of megalithic construction in, in what's now Indonesia, saying, quote, the first period uh, began in the 7th and 8th centuries CE in East Java and spread to the rest of the island, South and Central Sumatra and Lori Lindu in Central Sulawesi. It persisted in these regions until the 13th to 15th centuries CE. The second period stretches from the 16th century to the present and in some ways a continuation of the is and in some ways is a continuation of the first but encompassing other islands and regions. Sumba, Flores, Nias, North Sumatra by the Batak and Central Sulawesi with the Toraja. Are are the Batak and Toraja those are groups of people? Yeah, oh yeah. Okay. All of these are, yeah. So those were um, in North Sumatra by the Batak and in central Sulawesi with the Toraja. So the Toraja okay. live on Sulawesi, Batak live in Sumatra. Gotcha. Yeah. <clears throat> Continuing the quote. The construction of megalithic monuments intensified as indigenous peoples came in contact with newcomers, Hindu-Buddhist kingdoms in the first episode, and European merchants in the second. The acquisition of wealth, metal tools, fierce competition between tribes and clans, and a willingness to please ancestors gave rise to small local leaders during both periods. These leaders became sponsors of thousands of statues, standing stones, dolmens, jars, so kalambas, uh, sarcophagi, platforms, temples, seats, and stones with cup holes that are called <laughs> dacon. The collective effort required to construct megalithic monuments contributed to the cohesion of the tribes. The stone monuments, rough or carved, displayed the social status of the sponsor, and additionally, in these cultures based on oral traditions, the stones are fundamental communication tools to transmit tribal identity. Mm. The construction of megalithic monuments in, in Java and South and Central Sumatra ended with the decline of Hindu-Buddhist kingdoms. In the 15th century, the last monuments erected near Kuningan and Sukabumi in West Java and around Padang Lawas in central Sumatra were more strongly influenced by Hinduism, a syncretism that would recur five centuries later in the 19th century with the arrival of missionaries in Sumba, Nias, Flores, Toba, and Antana Toraja. Hmm. So again, I'm going to start a fight with a guy I made up who's on Google. Mr. Mr. Google, Mr. Google. results. Yeah. So there's a lot of, so I, I remember I was talking about like, oh, they're like, everyone's forgotten how it's done. And there's like how like the tribes people are forgotten if they ever knew kind of thing. So there's a lot of talk of like how or why these are constructed have been lost um, to give some like spirit fingers going, ooh, mm. kind of thing. And say without saying that someone else whink, created them. But there's probably a very simple and very unfortunate reason that that knowledge is lost, why that knowledge is uh, lost. Yep. So we just heard sort of allusions to or expressions of many different traditional like spiritual systems and knowledge systems um, that have existed because of that diversity, just that, that, that 
um, linguistic diversity, cultural diversity, um, and like just space between people. Yeah. Um, so the modern political state of Indonesia has a really curious take on freedom of religion where you are free to choose. Uh, but and it, it recognizes six official religions. Those are so, your choices. So, well, they were until 2017 and now you've oh, got great. other. Um, so, and this cool. is something that you put on your like national identity card. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so I would be like Baptist. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I wouldn't. I would be Protestantism. Um, so the six official religions are Islam, Protestantism, Catholicism. <laughs> so I can't even say it. <laughs> Following the teachings of Cathol. Yeah. My, my grandma like inhabited my form. Wouldn't let me say it. Um, <laughs> Hinduism, uh, Buddhism, and Confucianism. Hmm. For a very long time, like until 2017 starting um, from colonization sure no but for a very long time like i mean even just like in the contemporary state of Mm. of Mm -hmm. uh, indonesia if you had another religion well no you didn't Mm. um so the lack of recognition of non-normative religious expression combined with centuries of colonization by the dutch who were like super into the protestant reformation and calvinism calvinism Mm -hmm. which brought us like the bops like the puritans and the boers and <laughs> just like a lot of like that like very particular thing that um like calvinist christianity has with regard to people who aren't that um yep. i say as a <laughs> baptist on my cards <laughs> that i just mimed to anna um mm-hmm. so this along with the political instability to put it insultingly mildly uh, following independence and politically motivated genocide of the 1960s it's done untold damage to people's connection to their past and their place in their own cosmology Um, so if it was lost if how this was done was lost it's because it was taken from them it wasn't that yeah or everyone who knew it got murdered exactly exactly because they're they're sort of um community-based stuff looked too communist or or put them in a position where they were sympathetic to uh sort of communist um ideologies versus the wrong side of the military hunter yeah um so however in 2017 the the highest court the constitutional court of indonesia Mm -hmm. um added another option um so, <laughs> so if you observe a traditional belief system or perhaps you're Jewish or you are a member of a new religious movement or anything else outside the big six, um, but not an atheist because <laughs> you, um, you can now list on your national ID card, Aliran Keperkayan, which is like branches of beliefs and which it seems to be like a, it's not like the translation is kind of like believer in one supreme god, which is yeah, which isn't really so much but other. Yeah, so yeah, just like you're light, you're just a believer. You believe in something else, and it so it mm. doesn't. There's something else happening. Like there are things happening that aren't even, um, aren't even archaeological in nature that explain these things. Yeah, yeah. Amber, can I interest you in some Korean dolmens? Oh, that sounds good. I know it's spicy. Uh, let's talk about the Gochang, Hwasun, and Ganghua sites, just three of many, so many. The Korean peninsula is home to more than 35,000 dolmens. Which Everybody's got to calm, calm down. Rocks. 
big ones. I just <laughs> stand them up. You guys seen how big this rock is? Look, <laughs> let me put it this way. This is so big. <laughs> so the Korean Pen- uh, the Korean Peninsula is home to more than thirty five thousand dolmens, which, if you recall, the beginning of the episode equals or exceeds the number in all of Western Europe combined. So it's the Western Europe the of Asia. <laughs> no, it's the Stonehenge of Western Europe of, of Asia. <laughs> so here is a quote from UNESCO. Oh. Quote, dolmens are seen everywhere around Korea. They are so common that they can be mistaken for plain rocks sometimes. UNESCO. (laughs) Running into them while tilling the fields, oftentimes farmers inadvertently removed or smashed what they deemed to be troublesome rocks. I just misunderstood. A considerable number of dolmens in Korea have presumably been destroyed in this way. A great majority of dolmens in Korea are clustered along the West Coast areas, particularly in Jola provinces, where some 20,000 dolmens have been identified. Korean dolmens look quite different from those in other regions. They are largely divided into two types, table and checkerboard, depending on the shape and position of the burial chamber. A table dolmen is built with three to four well-dressed stone slabs. <laughs> They're snazzy. Mm. Business cash. Uh, that are set upright to surround an above-ground burial cyst and a large flat capstone that serves as the roof. The checkerboard dolmen, or the Go table dolmen, like the, the, the game, game Go, Go. Yeah. has an underground burial chamber made by erecting stone slabs or piling up broken stone fragments. So kind of like a cairn. Um, a flat capstone laid on low-propping stones covers the chamber. A similar, similar ideas piling stones on top of graves i guess there's like a finite number of ways to like put rock on rock to stack rocks yeah yeah rocks on rocks on rocks there are also standing stones throughout korea equally ancient but unrelated to burial practices probably markers on the landscape because if there's one thing you can see from a distance it's a big tall rock rock. (laughs) i just love so isn't that like a, a wonderful doesn't it just make you feel like part of something bigger when you imagine that, you know, like hundreds or thousands of years ago, there was somebody being like, oh, wow, <laughs> look at that rock, look at that big rock. It's like if you dropped that me a- in another period, I'd feel like, oh. yeah, oh, yeah, I, I do really enjoy that in the, you know, in the same way that people, I think people have always loved pockets full of rocks. Like there are, well, there are examples from prehistory where of manuports of so things that have been clearly brought from a long way away just because it's a f- interestingly shaped rock or there's that beautiful hand axe with the, the shell fossil in the middle. Well, there's also, what is it in the Kalahari? There was that excavation that we covered on oh, Old those News. Oh, beauty stones. Yeah. Where it's just stones. like like cute yeah, rocks. Yeah, yeah. Here are my cute yeah, rocks. just like somebody's rock I'm collection. an early human. Yeah. There's nothing on TV. Oh, and one looked like a face, right? Didn't one look like a face? I don't. Maybe you saw a face. I saw a rock. No, I mean, I think in the description, I think it said it. Never mind. Okay. Dolmen. While dolmens usually occur as a single isolated monument, there are, and I'm using quotes here, cemeteries in the South, which consist of 30 to 100 grouped examples, sometimes clustered, sometimes in a straight line. They're grouped burials. Why they're grouped? don't really know is it a family burial conga line or an area like in the in a similar way for that uh, the valley of the kings was just for nobility and royals it was in an area for people of similar economic class 
just a tidy way to organize so, your burials? Well, like the the Hafit tombs in, in Alain and in, in Oman, where they're up along the ridge and they look out. Do you see them? And it's, yeah. you both see them and you're like, oh, big ups. Good looking out. Uh, yeah. Or you're, you know, dead and you're like, oh, yeah. Like, that's my grandkid. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's probably a combination of many of those things, if yeah. not all of those things. Uh, dolmen tombs typically contain the remains of a single individual whose status is revealed by the precious bronze goods within, and by the very fact that they had a tomb constructed which involved the intense labor of moving the dolmen stones over many kilometers from their source. So they are probably high-status burials. Okay. Beyond that... Uh, okay. Mm. Well, let's keep moving many more kilometers away from the source of <laughs> Korean dolmens by going to Bolivia. <laughs> That's about as far as we could go. Uh, so from the middle of the middle to the end of the first millennium CE in the southern Lake Titicaca Basin in what's today Bolivia, there existed a polity known as Tiwanaku, a name shared with its urban center, but we don't we don't know the name that was an, was given to it by its residents. That so because they, they um they were done uh, by the time there was anybody there to ask. So there's so there's sort of it's it's been uh, categorized as like an empire and it collapsed. But it seems that it was a place and then people kind of left, left it uh, okay. because it was you know like climate and stuff you know like sure stuff going on stuff yeah um, we've seen it before sure have we'll probably see it again. We might not. Mm. (laughs) Too real. Too real. Keep reading. Um, So it was uh, hugely influential and has often been compared to the later Inca Empire, um, (laughs) which isn't necessarily an effective comparison. Uh, Tiwanaku doesn't exhibit some of the classic like imperial features like fortifications or sort of advancements in weaponry, uh, like for like like use at scale. Um, no, not well. I'm not talking like bureaucracy. Like that's not mm. one of. The, I don't. Maybe they were bureaucratic. I don't know. But the things <laughs> that they like that they don't have that the Inca did have mm. um, is sort of this uh, kind of state managed infrastructure, like roads. Uh, and, you know, <laughs> the Inca road is kind of yeah a banger, um, kind of a thing. And so, like outposts are sort of like these these places that you're pushing the borders out. Um, <laughs> And, or evidence of of burials of a ruling class. Like okay, there isn't cool. sort of that princely class of, of elites. Sure, yeah. Um, so what they did have, though, sing along if you know the words. Ooh, I know. Big, Big rocks. rocks. Yeah. So Tiwanaku City uh, features an extensive landscape of monumental architecture, which makes a ton of sense when we consider that it was an important pilgrimage destination for centuries and was home to many temples. Uh, so it's a large site, but let's pause at Puma Punku, the gateway of the Puma. Wow. So Puma Punku is a it's a it's a terraced earthen platform. So it's a not structure. Exactly a it's gate. not like okay. Yeah, it's not like a not really. Uh, okay. No, like it was a temple. So it's the okay. I think the gate. Through oh, which oh, the, the, the Puma gateway passes. of the Puma. So it's not like it's not like the the Ishtar gate. That's or what something. I was thinking. Like, yeah. No, this is no. That's why like Puma Punku. So it's okay. Gateway. The gateway of the Puma. Of the Puma. <laughs> uh, so, so it's a T shaped, capital T shaped, mm. um, uh, terraced earthen platform mound. 
uh, faced with megalithic blocks. So it is so like mound, and then yes, mound with wall, so, like sort of around or not wall, but like yeah, crust, like facing a crust. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> a crust. Yeah, like it was like a tiramisu. Yeah, and the lady fingers are megalithic blocks. Um, so Pumapunku is about five meters high. Yep. So it's, so it's, it's, it's monumental. Yeah, for sure. I was just yeah. thinking like, is my ceiling 15 feet It's high? like two, a story and a half, yeah. two stories. Yeah. Um, oh, three at the hotel that I was in in Riyadh. <laughs> Ceilings were so low. <laughs> You're kind of tall. I couldn't get my banner up. Mm. Um, so, and it was, um, at its at its longest and widest points, because again, T shape, yeah, uh, one hundred and sixty seven meters by one hundred and sixteen meters, so it's pretty big, sizable. Um, the t- so there's like a, a terrace on it, mm-hmm. so it's like mm-hmm. uh, you go to the mezzanine level, mm-hmm. um, and that is um, six and three quarters meters high, and it's about thirty eight and three quarters meters wide, so bigger, yeah. <laughs> Okay. Um, sure. So the largest block involved in it is estimated to weigh 131 metric tons, which again is like a tenth of that rock they didn't get out of Baalbek. Yeah, but it's still a really, 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 really so big huge. Rock. We're just talking about like huge rocks. Yeah. Uh, did you see the like stuff weighs like or whatever length that I sent you, where it's like oh yeah, yeah, the, yeah. like things that weigh a ton. That's and I was like, none of these are useful. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm just like <laughs> I use that all the time for work, like in, in a way to explain like how heavy something is, so that kids will be able to visualize yeah. it. It's like that's 300 cans of soup. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Okay. Um. So once again. I'm, I I had an I had a thought in the shower, and so I came back out to start my fight again with the man on Google, uh, because uh, Mr. Googleman. <laughs> if you Google this site, yeah. um, or if you have an elderly relative that watches YouTube a lot, um, you can get you find all kinds of media with titles ending in question marks. How um, did they make but, it? It may surprise you to learn that this is another case in which we have a pretty good idea of how humans of that time and place made such an impressively big building out of such impressively big stones. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to like give you a sense of the dimensions so that it sort of puts it forward of just like people can do this. People have done bigger. (laughs) Human people. Uh, But also people did this. Um, And so there are two steps for figuring out. Tell me. How did it happen? Tell me the foolproof steps. Doctors hate this one weird trick. <laughs> one weird trick. Look around. Use your eyes. So there were several methods used for cutting stone and like finishing it and fitting it together, and including a lot of stuff with really considerable precision, like really impressive stuff and if like you're interlocking with pieces. Really, really big stones. You need to be skilled because otherwise you either won't get you the get stone squished. to do anything, or you die, or like yeah. you know. But but hurt. in terms of like, there are like really like. Like good looking holes in these rocks. I mean, it was like, dang, you did a great job on that. Um, so looking around, you will find lots of partially cut, unfinished stones huh. around. Huh. So you get a sense of how they did it because you get like, you just can, like how we have like really like crappy pyramids that we can look at in Egypt. Like, <laughs> oh, they tried. Yeah. Like like crooked pyramids and then like pyramids yeah, that are given up. The, you get the, um, uh, the first drafts. 
Yeah. So you have you have stones that they just didn't end up using the way that sometimes like as you will see when you move into your place, there's like kind of a pile of bricks. They're just like, these are my later bricks. <laughs> like, what if I need a brick? I'm going like, to build you know, a brick oven. You, I know what you're going to do with it. But I'm saying for the purposes of like an example, you buy a flat, you know, you get your, you know, like, oh, we got all these rocks. What if we need them kind of thing? Um, and so there are when you have things that are partially complete, you can better recreate the process. Um, so Alexi Ronich, uh, who at the time was at UCLA, which did not surprise me because they do a ton of like cool modeling stuff mm-hmm. there. Um, that was back in 2018. And now he's at the University of Warsaw. He he did a project in which he 3D modeled Puma Punku. Cool. Um, and so not only is that extremely cool and tells you a lot about the space and how, um, how you know, big and cool it is, <laughs> it also shows how precedented it is because yeah. the structures that were revealed, folks who work elsewhere in the Andes, including one of my former professors, were like, oh, that looks like what I excavated, just <laughs> smaller. So it's just a bigger version of structures that are that people had been making excavated elsewhere yeah. so there are influences in like the influences in the architecture um from Tiwanaku are seen in later periods but also in other areas and so it's not it wasn't you know not forgotten even not unprecedented not the first time not the best time just like one time that we happen to see because mm-hmm. it's still out there because mm-hmm. it's big yeah Cool. Well, oh, my final contribution to our pocket full of big rocks is the stone circles of Senegambia, which you oh. may know, notice, which you may notice is a portmanteau of Senegal and Gambia. I don't think it's a... Is it a portmanteau? Yeah, because these are four large groups of megalithic circles located in the extreme western part of West Africa between the River Gambia and the River Senegal. This is an extraordinary concentration of over 1,000 monuments in a band, a hundred, not like a music band, in a swath, strip, some majestic word, a hundred kilometers wide along some 350 kilometers of the River Gambia. So it's 1,053 stone circles and a total of 28,931 monoliths. People love big rocks. People are just like... Everybody calm down. <laughs> big rock. Look under your seat. It's a big rock. <laughs> um, the thing about, so the thing that sort of collectively unifies these, and I know we've been saying like, you can't say that it's a unified cultural thing. These are consistent in their architecture and manufacture. Um, they're from the same place. Yeah. But, but it's, <laughs> but, but it's within a hundred by three fifty kilometers. So it's, okay. it's quite a sizable area. So what I'm saying is <laughs> these are they're consistent throughout that large distance. Okay. Um, in these in the stone circles there are tumuli which are group burial tombs, uh, little little hills. But there are also singular burials outside the circles which appear to predate them. So this was sort of a process of this whole uh, monumental collection of of architectural features coming together. The Sine Ngayene complex in Senegal is the largest site in the area and consists of 52 circles of standing stones, including one double circle 
In all, there are 1,102 carved stones on the site. Around one kilometer to the east, outside the inscribed property, is the quarry from which the monoliths were extracted and where the sources of around 150 stones can be traced. So, like, of all the the lengthy distances that we know some megaliths were hauled, like, this does... That's pretty good. Nice, easy schlep. Um, and, and so from the UNESCO website for the oh, no. uh, stone circles, quote, the circles of stones proposed for inscription represent the totality of the megalithic area in which the presence of such a large number of circles is a unique manifestation of construction and funerary practices, which persisted for over a millennium across a large geographical area and reflecting a sophisticated and productive society, end quote. That was a word salad way to say that. But if you would like to use your eyes to consume that word salad, uh, you can take a video tour through UNESCO. Uh, and there's a, a link that will be in the show notes. Um, there are many other clues to be found uh, at Wanar, which is a specific site within the, the larger spread. Um, that can tell about what these monuments originally look like because they have, to some extent, fallen down a little bit. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> um, for instance, uh. so like if you can picture a bunch of rocks falling down, now imagine what they would look like if they weren't falling <laughs> fallen down, if they were standing up instead. No, but like this is cool because it reconstructs like how the falling down happened. Like this. Mm. That's what I call therapy. For instance, the inner ring of the double circle features fallen monoliths that all fan out from the center of the monument. Okay. This may suggest coupled. So like think, think dominoes kind of, um, I told you, I told you I downloaded, uh, angry birds too during my fever. And so I'm imagining a lot of, like it's just so cruel. Still. It's not very nice. They're not nice to each I other. Don't, oh, it's a, it's a one-sided aggression. It's take that angry birds. <laughs> You blasted. This may suggest, coupled with findings of dry stone around the monument, that there used to be dry stone beneath the monoliths, and the cylinder made up of the inner ring and dry stone was once filled with earth. So then it when it collapsed due to outward pressure, the stones all fell outward as well. So they basically had like an unstable base that kind of went... Oh. Yeah. I did that too. In therapy? Oh. Pottery shards were also found scattered around the site, buried at various depths. I'll save me at 23. Yeah. Some deposition <laughs> occurred after the fall of the dry stone, but before the collapse of the monoliths. So, in other words, pottery may have been deposited at this monument after total and or partial abandonment of the monoliths. Okay. Yeah. So, it wasn't like everybody stopped using it for any reason whatsoever, and then they all fell down. Yeah. It wasn't, Is that what? No, I think it was just sort of like a prolonged period of... Like they were in use and then they weren't for a while and then some were damaged, but some were still in use. So like overall, it was like a slow disintegration over time as opposed to any kind of large sudden collapse and like dis discontinuation of use like all at once. Okay. Okay. You gotta, you gotta budget for upkeep. Yeah. Gotta keep those stones standing. Yeah, stuff happens. Yeah. Oh, for sure. And now some evidence based. go up. Yeah. Yeah. It's time for some evidence-based speculation. Based on all of these findings, researchers have developed. I just remembered what happens at the end of this. Uh, Researchers have developed a possible model. (laughs) Fall down. 
researchers have developed a possible model for the funeral activity sequence that took place at 1R. Step one, somebody dies. Uh, the sequence has three distinct phases. Phase one includes cutting the graves in the subsoil, the funerary rites, so the actual burial. Uh, sometimes the construction like of the mounds. interment. Interment, but, but also like the sort of building of the tumuli. Um, phase two is when the standing stones were raised around the mounds. Phase three okay. consisted of erecting frontal stones. So just sort of, I guess, marker stones. Phase three may also have been when these monuments became sites of ritual activities and ceramics started getting deposited around them. So like maybe there's some ancestor stuff going on. Okay. So they're deposited, not discarded. Correct. Uh, oh, well, that's I why guess, I was like, people kept using like, no, no, no I guess, okay. um, I don't know if I can say correct. Certainly. Like, I think, I think they were deposited or like, uh, okay. uh, given, you know? And so at the end, of, <laughs> at the end of the article, quote, the creators of this model recognize that other sequences are possible and the order for the sequence of events at the double circle may have been different as well. Yep. Thanks guys. Here's the order for the burial of the funerary sequence. <laughs> but uh, it could also not be that, but it, it 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 might be that, but other ways are good too. It sounds like, you know, reviewer one tried. Yeah. No. <laughs> wow. Okay. That's a lot well, of rocks. To that I say, to all of this I say, oh my God, there are too many rocks. Um, there are so many things we didn't talk about. But Anna. maybe we could do rock part two. We could do rock someday. part two. We could do a bonus episode um, oh, on rocks. Ghost. Or we could do it on Patreon because it charged people and I'm so sorry. Um, so the things that we aren't talking about include the Inuksuit of the Arctic. Ooh. Um, little, you're doing a seal. stone guys. Are you? Oh, I'm doing a stone yeah, guy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yep. Um, it's very similar to your seal. Oh, <laughs> so, uh, megalithic Olmec heads mm -hmm. in, uh, mm -hmm. the Yucatan basin, Palenque. um, or Palenque in what's today, Mexico, the like big old jars in what's today, Laos, um, Gebekli Tepe. Um, the very diverse megalithic, both phallic and non-phallic uh, traditions in what's today Ethiopia. Mm -hmm. um, obelisks in general. Just in um, general. Like fools out here in national parks dressing out park rangers by making Please little stop fake stacking cans. rocks. Please stop doing Please that. Stop. People are wandering off. <laughs> Please. PSA, don't make a cairn. It's not cute. People use that to get out of the woods alive. Yeah, um, and they're, also they're weird wayfinding. art. Yeah. Stones. They're not aesthetic. Um, and weird art. We didn't talk about any of those things, Anna. There's so many other types of rocks. Somehow, all we have talked about more than 100,000 rocks today. And it's only taken us an hour and 37 minutes. Is this our heaviest episode? <laughs> no. Because sometimes you write no, some... Spooktober. But... <laughs> I tracked. <laughs> uh yeah, so you're good at breadth. I'm good at depth, and well, thanks that's for listening. It. I stopped everything. Yeah. I just I just named things I didn't talk about. Yeah, well, consider that a teaser for some eventual episode, okay. friends. And thank you for listening, and thank you for supporting the show, and leaving reviews, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. All the things that you do, keep doing it, and uh, we really appreciate you sticking with us. You are our rock. Bye! <laughs>
Goodbye.